Father, be with us now. Be in our hearts, be in our minds, as we come to understand the mysteries of your love. Help us to find the courage to live out the fullness of your calling. To love you and each other. In Jesus Christ. Amen. Right, morning everybody. It's, it's really, really great to be back. And it's, um, it's amazing to see so many of you who've come in here today in this dreary little hangar uh, when it's such a fantastic day outside. I can't believe you've done it. Thank you very much indeed. Um, let me make a deal with you. There's so many people here. I'm going to do three sessions. If you've had enough after one or two, just that's absolutely fine by me. It's a fantastic day outside. You don't have to be pitched in for the whole thing. There'll be fairly, uh, fairly separate units. Um, this is a terrible setup. So what I'm going to do to start with is I'm going to get us to move the chairs a little bit. Um, it'll do a little bit of brain gym. Do you ever do brain gym here? It's just before you think. It's, thinking is a kinetic activity. You know, you have to, I have to do all this sort of stuff before I, before I think. <laughs> but it's just, um, thinking, is a, thinking is, a physical, is a physical thing. And um, so what I quite like to do, I need a bit of space to walk around, and I think this looks like school to me. So what I'd really quite like to do is if we could just get up, move our chairs so we get in some sort of like a bit of a shape there. So lots of noise, lots of moving chairs. I'll move this back. so far away. Don't be shy, guys, over there. You don't have to be in one single. You don't have to be in one single thing. Just, just come in a bit. So, you... Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, sit down where you are. Sit down where you are. Imagine you that sounds like the World Cup. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter. Mess is good. Mess is much better. Mess is better than those straight lines. Can you also, I'm going to do one other little tacky thing that I know Episcopalians do. We are going to do, we're going to do some group stuff uh, at various points in this. So can you just look around you, and for someone you don't know, just introduce yourself to them, say, say hi. Someone around you, if you don't know them, say hi, introduce yourself. <clears throat> I know it's embarrassing. <clears throat> okay, that's great. We don't have to get too friendly. I've, um, I have to apologise in advance to everybody. Um, I've, brought the, uh, I've brought all that I need to give a lecture, which is black coffee and red bull and, um, and uh, a Tylenol. I haven't been very well. And uh, last night, 
I popped one of your Ambien's, which is absolutely fantastic to make me sleep, but I'm mildly groggy this morning, so... Um, I'm going to um, uh, do three, uh, three different sessions here this morning. And the first one, I could subtitle, How to be good. How to be good. No pressure, then, on, on that short lecture. And I want to talk uh, for about 40 minutes about what I've learned um, from my time uh, in the British Army. And I'll talk to you about um, what, I, what I've done with the Army in a moment. Those of you who were with a small group that I led two years ago in breakout session um, on Sunday afternoon may recall some of this stuff that I've talked about um, then, but I thought it was worth sharing in the bigger group. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about, about me and my history and what I bring to all of this. Um, my background as, as, as an academic, as a philosophy lecturer, I taught philosophy in Oxford for, in fact, for about 10 years, um, and, uh, and went really from philosophy into the church. So my fundamental discipline is philosophy. Um, my PhD is in philosophy, and that was my area. But um, I was a parish priest for 10 years, and now I'm at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, where I'm the, uh, the, the, the theologian on the staff there. Um, my basic interest is, and has always been, roughly in ethics. Can everybody hear me okay? Is that... You can, can you hear? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my, my real interest is in ethics. Um, and that's, that's the sort of work that I've done. And I'm going to try and give a sort of popular presentation of some of the sort of big issues bubbling up within, within ethics at the moment. Um, what I'd quite like to start with, yes, the army thing. Um, I, I, for the last six or seven years, uh, been the person responsible for ethics lecturing to all of the um, majors in the British Army who take command responsibility, first in Iraq and now in Afghanistan. So all of those, that level of the army, uh, they have to go through my ethics course, which, you know, you can uh, say what you like about how they behave, but I have the one that's responsible for teaching them ethics. And what I want to tell you is what I've learned from them in this first session, and that's the one that's, that's titled How to Be Good. Okay, um, this story for me uh, starts in Gaza and uh, seeing as the second uh, session story starts in Gaza as well, um, I don't know if any of you have been to Gaza, but I'm going to just, uh, if you haven't been to Gaza, I'm just going to show you where Gaza is. I bet many people haven't been to Gaza. Um, uh, so if you know, if you know um, Israel, um, let's just say Israel looks like that. And uh, at the bottom of Israel, there's Jerusalem, there's Tel Aviv, and at the bottom here um, is the Gaza Strip um, with the border with Egypt there and Israel on both sides and the Mediterranean Sea here. Gaza is a, a little strip of land about, I don't know, about five miles wide and about 15 miles long, maybe less than five miles wide. The most populated uh, place on the planet. What's that? You can't see that at the back. Okay, so it's not very good anyway. So, um, the most populated place on the planet, the most densely populated uh, place on the planet, um, huge amount of people crushed into this very small space, over half of them under 12. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary phenomenon. I'll come back to that later. 
why that's interesting. Over half of the people in Gaza are under 12. Um, it's the headquarters of Hamas, the terrorist organization. Um, it's a dangerous and scary place. It's also a remarkably beautiful place. The beaches here in Gaza are some of the best beaches in the Mediterranean, believe it or not. They're fantastic sandy beaches, but all the way down them have their green Hamas flags flying out. I went out to, um, to do some work um, with Christian Aid in Gaza uh, about five or six years ago and uh, was, was working right down on the bottom in a, in a pretty dangerous area called Rafa, um, uh, right on the border of, of Egypt. And, and, uh, and the, Israelis have just a, uh, the Israelis have a buffer zone between Egypt and Gaza, which they maintain. I was down there uh, to write a story for The Guardian. I, I, I do quite a bit of journalism. And I was writing a story about what the kids, what it was like to be a kid in, because there were so many kids, what it was like to grow up in, in the Gaza Strip. And I went out to play football with the kids. So that was the only thing that I could think that we had in common. I couldn't speak their language. They couldn't speak mine. So I went out to play soccer. So I spent three days playing soccer with the kids on big sandy open areas uh, on the Gaza Strip. And... Uh, you guys don't know anything about proper sports, but soccer's the really way to go. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they were all, there's this great uh, Arabic hero called Zid Zid Zidane, and they were just going Zidane, 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 and they were, they were taking the mickey out of me for all our footballers. And we got on just through the language, the international language of football. And at the end of that, um, at the end of that time, I mean, it's quite a remarkable time to see uh, the, the sort of, the trauma that those children were living under. At the end of that time, they took me into a, a wide op an open area where their house used to be. They said, "This is come and see where our house used to be. Come and see you. They took me into this big, wide open area, right down on the, on, the, on the Philadelphia Strip, on the border. And as we were standing there in this big open area of rubble that had been um, uh, destroyed by Israeli bulldozers, had been destroyed because Hamas had built building tunnels to, to build arms, uh, to bring arms underneath. Anyway, been destroyed. I was standing about 10 kids in the middle of this pile of rubble, and suddenly uh, an Israeli machine gun opened fire on us um, from, the, from about 300 yards away. And um, I saw, you know when you see in movies when bullets go boom, 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 like that? I mean, you only see them in the movies. Suddenly, those bullets go boom, 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 right next to me. And they just went straight down like that. They missed, obviously missed, still here. Um, but I was with, you know, six kids... We were obviously standing where we shouldn't have been standing, but it wasn't obvious to me that we were. Um, so we, at that point, I just legged it. Just ran. Completely, uh, you know, terrified. And hood, stood and hid behind this house that was there um, at the back. And there was this lady, I remember this lady hanging out her washing. And she'd seen it all before. She'd just seen it all before. And she was still, there were bullets flying all over the place. And she just kept, just kept on hanging out her washing. It was just extraordinary. And um, that moment was, for me, a very seminal, decisive, life-changing moment. Not because I was shot at, but because I'm standing there with a whole lot of kids, same age as my kids at the time. And what did I do when we were shot at? I just ran. Just ran. I, I mean, I'm, I was a vicar. You know, you don't get shot at. You're not prepared to be shot at. You don't know you're going to get shot at. But I just ran. And I stood behind the house, and I thought, that was... You know, did I look after the kids? Did I make sure nobody was all right? They were all right. But did I make sure they were all right? No. Did I? So I was quite ashamed 
by how I'd behaved at that time. I'm not sure exactly how I should have behaved. I'm not entirely sure what the right thing to have done in those situations would have, would have been. But nonetheless, I felt that my first thought was for my own safety and preservation, and it wasn't for the children that I was standing about. So when I got back home, I started um, thinking really hard about what courage means. My dad was in the Air Force, and um, like most kids, I sort of reacted against what my dad did, and so I didn't want anything to do with the military. Um, it wasn't really my sort of game. I was, you know, anti the war and uh, not really, um, uh, not very interested in the sort of work that my dad did. Slightly against it, really. Um, but coming back, I started to get fascinated by what is it, uh, what is it that people have who can walk out into a, a hail of bullets like uh, in Gaza and behave with honour and and dignity and, and goodness in those situations. What does it take to do? What is the nature of courage in those situations? So I went into this really, I, I, I was just browsing through our local bookshop and I came across this cheesy book. I, 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 I've kept it, but it's, it's the sort of book I'd really, because I'm a snob, I'd really chuck out of my library normally because it's full of you know, very clever looking books and this is not a clever looking book. And it's by, um, it's by a general in England called uh, Peter de la Billiere who who uh, was in charge of the um, SAS, the uh, Special Forces Unit. And uh, it's a book called Supreme Courage. What is courage? And it's stories of all the people who've won uh, the Victoria Cross, which is the highest award that, that we can have uh, in our country, for bravery. And it's a story of all these people. And he starts with a little introduction to this book on bravery. He says, all of us have a certain amount of courage. We've all got a little amount of courage but we can up our courage. We can make that courage that we have go further, last longer, with four things. Four things can make that courage uh, you know, be more than it is. And I, I'm just telling you what he says. I'm not saying I agree with this, but this is what he says. Training, discipline, patriotism, faith. Training, discipline, patriotism, they're the four things that can make the little bit of courage that we have go further. And I thought to myself, right, it's just very interesting. Is that true? Is that not true? How does that work? And about a couple of weeks later, I, um, I, have, this, I have a privilege of, um, uh, there's a slot on the BBC Radio 4 called Thought for the Day, which if you have been to England uh, uh, on sort of opinion formers or listen to Radio 4 in the morning, it's... It's what you listen to. And I get a three-minute God slot to talk on the radio. There's, there's six million listeners. I mean, it's a huge privilege to do six million people in broadcast. It's, it's the premier thing to do. And uh, I, I reflected on this, on Thought for the Day. I just said, this is really interesting. Um, talked a little bit about being shot at. Talked about this courage stuff and so forth. Anyway, two days later, I get a phone call from the British Army. I know nothing about the Army at all. Nothing. Uh, and I've really tried to do it. We would like you to come and be our ethics lecturer at the Defence Academy in, um, in, in Shrivenham, in Wiltshire. And, uh, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. I said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at that. And suddenly, three weeks later, I am faced with a bank of 600 majors in uniform 
in a lecture theatre. It is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they are, and I really know nothing about this subject at all, other than having mouthed off on the radio about it. And I have 600 maids in front of me, and they go, and here we have uh, Dr. Fraser, who is an expert on ethics. And uh, <laughs> over to you. And um, I rabbited through a few sessions. I have to do about, I'm doing it next week, actually. I have to do about um, six or seven of these um, lectures a week because you do so many people together. A, a, a year, six or seven a year. Um, and uh, the first few times, I really had no idea what I was doing. I rabbited on about theories of ethics and, and uh, uh, what ethical sort of decision-making looked like. But I was really there to listen to listen to the sorts of things they were saying, the problems that they were having, um, the sort of ethical decisions that people had to make. And to start with, they were, they were sort of fairly predictable, I guess. The things that I expected were the things that I first heard. They weren't the deep problems. So the first thing was, when can you shoot, when can you not shoot? Those are the, the first sorts of problems. Um, uh, when can you shoot someone when they're retreating or running away, those sorts of things. When can you shoot someone who looks like they're underage? Uh, when can you shoot... The, the real problem is when can you shoot what's called what the British Army calls a dicker. A dicker is somebody who's standing on a mobile phone uh, overlooking the battleground or the, overlooking whatever's going on and maybe saying into his mobile phone, uh, hello, mum, what's for tea? Or maybe saying to his mobile phone, uh, move the mortar six degrees left. And you just don't know. You just don't know what's being said into that mobile phone. Do you shoot, do you, do you what they call slot him, or do you not slot him? So that's the question about... There's a whole load of questions that were like that about... Um, I mean, very difficult questions in all sorts of ways. <coughs> but they were, they, were fundamentally, um, they were fundamentally what I expected. But then... The more I listened, the more I realized there was a much, much deeper problem. Yeah, we might have to close those doors. Um, there was a much, much deeper problem that actually uh, is a problem for a, that affects us all. Um, what is the nature of right and wrong? So they would say, uh, you get this big bunch of army officers, and they'd say, well, it used to be the case that we used to live in a broadly Christian country with a broadly uh, common sense of what right and wrong, good and bad meant. And we could broadly draw from that inheritance, understanding that each other stood for roughly the same sort of thing. So now we live in a much more diverse society, much more diverse culture. And what does right and wrong mean? Uh, it certainly doesn't mean your religion. You're standing there as a priest. It doesn't mean that. It's not that. It's got to be something broader than that. It's got to be something more inclusive than that. It's got to be something more diverse than that. How do we uh, come up with uh, a strong sense of what right and wrong is when we are now a much more diverse society, much more diverse even as the army community than we were 50 years ago, certainly longer than that. So there's one particular problem you start struggling with. Whose morality are we... Are we, are we um, we're we trying to model. But then there's another problem. The other problem is something about how battlefields have changed. 
uh, the model battlefield is extremely fast-moving and extremely confusing. Extremely confusing. You have to make a decision instantly. Absolutely instantly. Um, so something happens and now react. Now the reason that is so important is because, for the most part, we have a model of uh, how you make a moral decision that um, you have time to think about it, basically. You know, you have a big moral dilemma. Mm, let me go and sleep on that. Let me go and think about that. Let me go and think about what it is. Let me go and think about what all the... There is no time in these sorts of situations to do any of that reflection. So the decisions that you make have to be, or a lot of them are, instant. And when the more and more we thought about it together, the more we realised that the sorts of things, uh, the sorts of ways in which our culture uh, did moral decision-making couldn't work in that situation. Here's a for instance. Most of our uh, sense of right and wrong these days are carried by books of rules, by our laws, by our sense of what's right and wrong. And so you go, you know, what, what are the rules? What are the laws? Are you breaking the law? The law carries a great deal of our sense of morality. Now you get out into the battlefield and there are huge amounts of rules, huge numbers of rules, that are there to determine what is right or wrong in a particular circumstance. Now, I would have brought the British rules of armed conflict for you uh, just to show you my point, to prove my point with a big, fit, fat book. But to be honest, I love golf clubs over here and I'm not going to love this great big book just, just for one. But trust me, it is huge, great big, fat book. And that is only one part of a whole load of legislation that uh, is there to, and, and, and with your military as well, that governs the activity of uh, those people who who put themselves in harm's way. How on earth, this is a really important question, how on earth do soldiers make very, very, very quick moral decisions when the rules are so voluminous that even the people who write them, even the lawyers, don't know them all? I teach with military lawyers, and, and, and I remember one point, someone asked them, do you know all the, do you know all the rules in this book? to, to a, a very senior uh, military lawyer, and his response was, don't be silly, I have a life. Now, just think about that as a response. We have invested in our culture. We have given uh, the idea that, rule, uh, that, that morality, that ethics, that right and wrong, looks like a set of rules. That's how a lot of us think about what right and wrong ought to be like. And actually, these rules have multiplied. And I want to say to you that what, what I found here in, in the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan was a circumstance where it completely broke down. Because these books of rules, huge numbers of rules, that have uh, that carried our sense of what right and wrong is, for the most part, in, a, in, a, in an everyday sense, cannot help people. I mean, they can, you can roughly know a lot of them, but they break down in this particular culture. So, have we misunderstood what right and wrong looks like? So, 
That's the, that's the problematic I've got. I want you just to picture fast-moving, instant decisions. You've got to make a decision about what's right and wrong in a particular instant now. You've got not even half a second to think about it. You've got to do it. We cannot do that anymore, or we're much, much more difficult about doing that anymore because we have a sort of much more agonized sense of what is right and wrong. We're more confused about what right and wrong is, and we've, we've allowed it to be uh, codified in large sets of rules, and these rules are often ones that we don't know. Let's just look at the idea that ethics is about rules. There's a fancy, uh, there's a fancy, um, there's a fancy word for this ethics, and it's called deontological. Yeah. Deontological ethics. Can anybody think of the archetypal form of deontological ethics? The archetypal rule-based set of what is the... If you had to say what ethics looks like and it had to be the sort of ultimate form of... It would be the Ten Commandments. Exactly right. The Ten Commandments. That's what ethics looks like. Thou shalt not. One, two, three, four, five. How many commandments are there in the, in the Old Testament? Oh, who said that? Oh, it's the vicar. <laughs> Does anybody else know how many commandments there are, apart, apart from the, the rector? Sorry. What? Nope. 613. <laughs> now then, this is... They say there's ten commandments. That's exactly right. There's, there's ten commandments. Uh, they say there's ten commandments, and there's not ten commandments. Uh, there's 613 commandments in the... Uh, uh, why? Why are there so many? Now, this is what happens. So you start with ten. This is the problem with rule-based ethics. This is the problem with making ethics about rules. You start with ten, and then somebody goes, yeah, that was good, but what about this situation? Oh, yeah, they don't cover this situation. We'll have another one for this situation. Oh, what about this situation? Oh, no, we haven't got one for that situation either. We'll cover. So, and suddenly, life gets more and more complicated, and the more complicated life becomes, the more rules you need to cover it, so more the rules multiply. Do you see what I mean? But they haven't got one for all situations. The more complicated the situations, the more rules you need. So rule-based ethics is all very well saying, blithely, if you live your life by the Ten Commandments, all will be fine. Well, that, that's not even true in the Bible. Okay, They've got 613 in the Old Testament. Uh, and, uh, and when it comes to a very complicated situation, this is why I think the the situation in, um, uh, in, in the army is so interesting. Very complicated situation, like a modern battlefield. The rules are, there's thousands of them. There's thousands of them. And suddenly, you realize, I realize, the failure of deontological ethics. Okay, what works? That doesn't work. It's got to be there. Let me just be clear about what I've just said. I have not said that I think there should be no rules about how you fight, or there should be no rules about any of that. I'm not saying any of that. They're absolutely right, absolutely essential, terribly, terribly important. But the idea that they carry, that they're the bearers of our sense of right and wrong, no. no. What actually, in practice, what actually stops people from doing bad things? There's some really interesting studies about what stops people, what gives people courage, what, what, what really bears their sense of um, right and wrong. There's a really great American study called Obeying Orders. 
uh, about Vietnam. Um, a guy called Mark Osriel. And uh, he writes about uh, a situation where there's this young guy who's obviously just seen red and he's about to go, he's just to go, about to go mad. He's obviously been in, he's, he's been in battle and uh, he's just, you know, pumped up and he's about to just go on some sort of rampage. And uh, his, his senior officer, you know, sees this and he says four words that stop him. He says four words that stop him completely and just, like, bring him up short. Those words are emphatically not, uh, you know, listen, mate, this is subsection four, paragraph two of the, um, of the, uh, of the code of the, 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 you can't do that, this is against the law and so forth like that. He says four words, and the four words are, Marines don't do that. Marines don't do that. And the reaction was instant. Instant. Bloody hell, yeah, quite. I understand. I understand. I understand what you just said. And he stopped and pulled away. And this um, article by Mark Osrell is reflecting upon how we actually deliver our sort of ethical, you know, sort of knowledge or, you know, what actually really works for people. And it's not rules. It's not, it's not any deontological ethics. It's about our sense of identity, about our sense of who we are, about our sense of whether how right and wrong has shaped us in a sort of more personal, fundamental way. Something about who we are as um, people with from particular culture, from particular stories. This is all very, very, very important, I think. What stories, what narratives? You know, what, if you said to people... If you said to people, where do you get your sense of right and wrong from? You get it from your family, from how you're brought up, from what the narratives are, from what the stories are, from the culture are, and they shape you as a person. It's who you are. So it's not about, I mean, the rules are, are right, but they're not where it originally comes from. It comes from some sense of fundamental identity. It's about, it's about you. Who am I? I am someone who understands myself in this way. And, you know, to be a Marine is to be, according, you know, for this person to be a Marine is to live according to a certain set of principles. One of the things that's really dangerous, I think, hugely dangerous, that's happened in Britain, because of military cuts, um, we've had to change a lot of our um, structures of how our, and we've combined lots of uh, units and this, that and the other, and all the sorts of na the old names of particular regiments have gone. And uh, for those who sort of like are into efficiency and it seems a really good idea, oh, you can put all those together and combine them, give them a new name, and that was it. But what happens is you lose, often, you lose this culture that has been built up over hundreds of years about who we are and what we stand for, the pictures that are on the walls, the stories that people tell each other, the stories about, about what... And they cannot be replaced by a set of rules. If you get rid of the pictures on the walls, the stories you tell each other, the, the way that people have been brought up, and you instead give them the rules of armed conflict, and say that's, that's where the morality comes from, we're stuffed. We're absolutely stuffed. So there's something much more fundamental than deontological ethics. Something about your culture, your community, and something about who you are. 
Okay, five minutes to talk about that. Just have a little chat about that. I'm going to get you to ask some questions about that, and I'll go on from that after a minute. So turn around and two minutes. Ready, steady, go. Just chat with your neighbour. Chat with your neighbour. Chat with your neighbour. <coughs> change the arm. Um... Okay, that's it, that's all. Just a little buzz. Okay, what I want to do is now just, um, I've set up a little bit of the problematic that, uh, to start with, and you've had a little buzz about it. There are, roughly speaking, roughly speaking, very, very roughly speaking, uh, three big forms of ethics, theories of ethics, ways of doing ethics. One is uh, uh, deontological ethics, some form of, of rule-based ethics. The other very popular form of ethics that was invented in the 19th century is uh, utilitarianism. 
Uh, utilitarianism is a, was a response to growing secularization where they wanted a uh, uh, free-thinking uh, English people like Bentham and Mill wanted an, uh, an ethic that wasn't about religion. So they came up with the idea that uh, what is good equals that which produces the greatest happiness for the greatest number. That's a, a very famous form of, a very famous ethical formulation. It's not uh, rule-based. It's a calculation that you make that what is good is that which leads to the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Uh, I think that's a problematic form of ethics, and I'm going to deal with it very, very quickly. Um, and uh, and if you're a great utilitarian, then I apologize for dealing with it so lightly. But I think there's uh, two big problems with um, what is right being that which creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number. The two problems are you can never know what creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number because it's all about the consequences of your action. So if I do something now, how do I know the consequences of my action? I mean, our actions have so many, so many extraordinary consequences, you can never know that actually I'm left in a situation where I never know what I'm, according to that form of ethics, I never know whether what I'm doing is right or wrong because I never really know what the consequences of my actions are ever going to be. Consequences can be, well, we all know we can do something with very much the right intention, have all sorts of dreadful consequences and so forth. So that which leads to the greatest happiness of the greatest number is a problem because you'll never know if you're doing the right thing. I think there's also another problem, and these are sort of, this is sort of textbooky type of stuff, but I'm going to deal with it anyway, um, is that you can, you can think up examples under utilitarianism where um, something manifestly awful uh, is shown to be right. So um, Im imagine if you're, so I'm going to pick on you because you're sitting in the front row, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> so um, uh, imagine you're, um, uh, you're, you're, you've been just been done for, for rape, okay? Uh, you're completely innocent, and I'm the judge. But everybody here uh, who's standing outside the courtroom thinks you've done it. And I know as the judge that uh, uh, if I say that you're innocent, they are going to riot and kill about ten people. Because, I mean, it's just, you, you guys are just, your blood is up. There is, I can anticipate. Now, if I'm a utilitarian, I go, I'm sorry, mate, but the greatest happiness, the greatest number is you go to prison, and they don't riot, and ten people don't get killed, and, you know, there's only you that, that, that suffers. Okay. I make a manifestly... I'm sorry, I've done that too quickly, but you understand exactly what I said in that situation. So I make a... I, the judge would make a manifestly unfair decision on the basis of a utilitarian calculation. That ain't right and wrong. That ain't right and wrong. So... Um, a lot of people argue with me about all of that, and that's... But that's not what I'm going to do today. So there's a, the ontological ethics. There's, there's uh, rule-based ethics. There's ethics about... Um, the greatest happiness, the greatest number, consequential ethics. This is the bad boy that I really want to focus on, because this is the one that's, um, that really is now, everybody's starting to talk about, and that is really the area of, of real interest. goes back to Aristotle, who first thought about it, um, but uh, really is, um, for, for sort of ethical professionals, really reinvented in, in the in the 20th century. It's called virtue ethics. And here, virtue ethics is a very simple idea that ethics isn't about what you do, it's about who you are. It's about what you do, it's about who you are. It's about 
whether you are a virtuous person, okay, whether you are a person who manifests certain sorts of virtues, it's about about what you do, about who you are. Very, very interesting. So, what you want to say is, um, if you have soldiers who are courageous and good-hearted and uh, just and you know, various different virtues that they embody, that they will, in complicated situations, approximate to the right decision because they make those decisions instantly out of their own being. Not with reference to the rules, but out of, as it were, their deepest moral instincts. Something to do with themselves. Something to do with who they are. Something to do with what, how we've been shaped, how we've been formed, how we've been brought up. It's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a simple idea that you might think it's just taken me a hell of a long time to get to this point. But that's philosophy for you, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> but the idea that, just to just keep it in terms of the clarification of the different things that are going on, that actually, that what people are now talking about is the heart of the heart of ethics, the heart of this, isn't right behaviour, but, because there is a great complexity in regulating that, it is about the good person. What is the good person? What does the good person look like? And that is... So when we talk about soldiering, and I use soldiering because the environment is so incredibly morally complicated. It's so... That's what's, that's what's important to me about, the, about um, Afghanistan. It's so morally complicated. So morally complicated that these other forms of ethics break down. What we have to say in those situations is the good soldier, the person who has been formed and shaped appropriately, is the person who I trust best to approximate to the right decisions in complicated situations. So what we have then is the idea that what is key is who you are. Who are you? It suddenly becomes the fundamental question, not a question about rules or something. Um, there's a little formula that... Uh, that and, the, and the US Army are quite good on this. The eth ethnic people who teach in the US Army, they have a little formula. You guys like little formulas. Be, no, do. They have in uh, one of those sort of manuals... Be, no, do. So everything originates in who you are, and it goes into what you know, and then that goes out into what and you behave. So the... So now the question is, and this is why I've labelled this how to be good, how to be good, is that actually, if it's about who you are, if it's about our fundamental nature, um, how do we... How do we become good? That's out of the question. How do we, how do we, it's not just about keeping the rules, it's something about me. And one of the things that the Ahami again says, which I think is just extraordinary, brilliant, and I think, you know, mum and dads know this the world over as well, but these things are really just worth reflecting upon, is Peter Dillabilier says at the beginning, training, discipline, patriotism and faith. Training. What do they know about training? Why do uh, you learn to strip a gun 500 times in the army? Strip, 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 
and strip, 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 put it back together, blindfold, strip, 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 put it back together. Why do you do that? You do that because you practice it so often that when you're getting shot at, strip, 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 put it back together again. So you practice in normal situations so that in really difficult situations, you just do the right thing. You do the thing that you're supposed to do. You practice it. Why do you do all that marching up and down? Why do you do all that? Because if you learn discipline in normal situations, then in tricky situations, you're much more likely to manifest it as well. My word, it's ever so simple, isn't it? So, how does that work morally? That works morally in exactly the same way. You practice to be good in all the little things, parts of life, so that when you get to the big decisions, the tricky decisions, the decisions where you're tested, that's how you learn to do it. You do it simply. I think liturgy, good liturgy, is going to church is in one way practicing training to be good. Is that sort of rehearsal. It's like, it's almost a bit like marching up and down, marching up and down, marching up and down. Just rehearsing for yourself the right responses in a way that you might rehearse for your child the right responses. So that when it comes to the time that you're tested or you're put on the spot or so forth, those right responses come more easily, more naturally. Now, here, So here's the top line for this. Here's the top line, which is going to sound shocking. Okay, how to be good when you don't think you're good. I don't think I'm good. I really don't think I'm good. Really, really don't think I'm good. How to be good? Answer, in the first instance, fake it. <laughs> fake it. That's the way you do it? Just, just fake it. It doesn't matter if you're faking it. Fake it. Just do it. Just try and do it. Try it on. Try it on for size. That's the first step. Try it on for size. Just see what it's like to do it. See what it, Does that sound superficial? There have been huge arguments about whether that's superficial or very profound. I think it's very profound. I think it's a very profound response. There is one of my great heroes, uh, moral heroes, a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, uh, Letters and Papers from Prison is one of the great books of, of the sort of Christian life. He was a, he was a, a German who was um, uh, arrested for the plot to assassinate Hitler and was hung in Flossenburg concentration camp just before the end of the war. And he was a very smart, posh uh, um, German. Very noble. And when he was in the camp, and he wrote this fantastic, fantastic book, when he was in the camp, um, he would say, I don't know if I'm a hypocrite or not. You see, I walk out of my cell, and I have this, you know, Jeffrey Hoare-type bearing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, I have this sort of, you know, very distinguished-looking... Um, and everybody looks to me and says, wow, he's so courageous. He's so... Uh, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is just absolutely amazing. Uh, he's such a leader. He's so... And he said, inside... Myself. I am so terrified. I am more terrified than you can possibly say. I'm just, so am I courageous or am I not courageous? Am I courageous or am I not courageous? And he has this poem. He writes, who, who is the real me? Which one's the real me? Is the real me the superficial me that everybody sees, as it were, the public me? Or is it the private me that is terrified, that is, that doesn't know how to, you know, doesn't. And he says, funny enough, there's two ways of looking at it. You could either think that the real me, and our culture thinks this too much, is always the enemy. Is always the enemy. Or you could think that the real victory is the public, the thing that I'm doing, 
and that the, the bit inside is in retreat from sort of checks I'm writing for myself, as you understand. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be this. And you inside are just going to have to learn to square up to what I've just decided and committed myself to be. And this bit inside, the bit that's weaker or, or, um, or you know, afraid or calling to do various different sorts of things, that bit is the bit that is being, that is being shaped by the outer. We have this idea of, we have this idea of, of ethics, this idea of authenticity, that, that the real you is somehow the inner you. There's always the inner you. Tell me what you really feel inside. Tell me what it's like and get it all out and then I'll find out what you're really like. Now, is that... Is that and, and our cultures, especially the culture in the West, especially the culture in the West is saturated by that idea that the inner you is always the real you. Well, actually, sometimes the real you is the things that you do, is the public you, not superficially, not pretending, but just, you know, he was courageous. He did walk out of his cell. He did walk up to the, to, to the scaffold with a great nobility. He did inspire huge amounts of people. That was a great act of courage. And if you start thinking about that, then how to be good starts looking scarily, scarily easy, easier than it was. Because we used to have the idea that what we had to change is that little bastard inside who was trying to do all sorts of other things. Okay, that really wanted this, that, and the other. The ego, the self, the will, the so forth, that that was the thing that you first had to work on and then everything else would. But this way, nah, then there's no alibi this way. There's no alibi. There's no way of I can't do it. It's as it were, you start with, what do you do? What do I do? And the, the behavior is shaped by, the inner is shaped by the outer. You have a completely different sort of thing. Again, like the army, why do you strip a gun, Bren gun, thousand times when you don't need to. God, it sounds boring. What do I do that for? Why? Because when you have to, in situations where you're being tested, you can suddenly do it right. The same is true of marching. The same is true of the moral life. That, I say, is what liturgy is all about. It's what church can be all about.